Let's go ahead and pray. And Father, as we move now into a time of studying your word, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that you would speak to our hearts, uh, that you would convict regarding areas of our lives, Lord, that maybe we weren't even aware of, Lord, that you would do your work and give us the gift of not leaving us the same as when we walked in, um, but allowing for growth, Lord. And we ask you in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to do that right now. We're going to study the Bible. So go ahead and grab one. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13. We got some Bibles up here. Looks like Zach's handing some out. Yeah, there's a couple up here. I'm going to grab myself one. Acts chapter 13, if you have a white or a blue Bible that we handed you, is on page 537, 537, pizza. One of the junior hires told me that was cool to say, so I did. If you didn't know... uh, we have a big group of sixth graders that just moved up into junior high, so they aged out of the children's ministry system. Um, so they are here with us. Yeah! So if you see them, do what most adults do and just ignore them and give them a look of disdain. No, don't do that, right? Uh, one of our core values is that we're about the next generation. Uh, one of the reasons we set up the church the way we set it up, and we have music playing and we try to get as many of you involved on stage as we can and we try to have like nice signs and Teddy takes great pictures and like all the things that we're doing I want kids to look at this church and be like hey I like that that's cool I could do that one day I want them to see as many of you adults engaging in the gifts that God has given you so that they could be inspired to do that so uh looks like a big group of them have sat over here not Zach he's just short but the rest of them (laughs) Uh, yeah, so give them a hug. Say glad to see you. Uh, not to make it awkward. I'm sure they love being pointed out from the stage, but, you know, love you guys. All right. Uh, second thing that happened this week was we had a men's retreat, and it was awesome. There's a bunch of good dudes at this church. Um, I'm super grateful for it. It is humbling, and, um, and, yeah, I'm excited for the future and where God leads us. So here we go. Acts chapter 13. Spent the last two weeks looking at the story of a man. Maybe that's probably not the best way to say it. Maybe uh, because what was significant about the last two weeks is not the man that we were talking about. It was the path that he was on, right? His name was Herod. He was a king and he was on this path, this life that he was living of self-magnification, making much of himself. And it started with pride. It led to worship of things that were not God and ended with self-magnification. And so that was kind of the path we talked about. Uh, We talked about it for two weeks because I think it's a very common path for people to live their lives on and not to know it. Like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this because I think this is about me. Now, in contrast to the self-magnification path, making much of yourself, we talked about the correct path was making much of Jesus, Christ magnification, God magnification. Right? At the end of the day, he is magnified, not I am magnified. And we saw the contrast at the end of that last week uh, at chapter 12, starting in verse 23. Okay, so if you're at 13 on page 537, go up two verses, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, that's Herod, 
because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, which we talked about last week was gross and kind of awesome at the same time. And then verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied, right? So we have these two paths. One of them is increasing and multiplying. One of them is being struck down. And what's interesting is I didn't, you didn't need to come to church to know that. Like, you didn't have to come here this morning to know that people who are all about self-magnification kind of suck to be around. Is, is that news to anybody? Right? The people in the line at the bank who think, like, they're the only ones that got stuff to do, so they're, like, cutting. Right? The kids on, at school that think life is all about them. They're brats and bullies. Like, the people who drive, like, they're the only ones on the road. Like, can I get an amen? Right? Like, nobody needed to be reminded from the scriptures that people who are all about self-magnification are awful people to be around, and that type of life does not work out. But our attitude towards self-magnification is often not one of intolerance. It's often one of tolerance. We know that an entire life built out of self-magnification is a terrible idea, but we still kind of want to see how much self-magnification we can get away with before it kind of ruins us, right? Like, can we sneak up on that line? Like, we definitely know there's a line. And like, people who are all about themselves, like, they're awful to be around, but we kind of like the way it feels to make much of ourselves. We kind of like the things that we do that magnify ourselves. Now, the other path that we were talking about, this path of life that leads to Jesus' magnification is characterized by the word of God in that verse, right? Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. It's a little bit of a weird way to say it, but the reason why it's worded like this is because God chose to reveal himself to the world by his word. At the very beginning, it says he spoke things into existence. So this is how he decided he was going to interact and reveal himself to humanity, like the primary way was going to be through his word. And so we wrote, they wrote the Old Testament scriptures. And the people of God interacted with God based on the scriptures for thousands of years. And then Jesus came and God said, you know what, that Bible, throw it away. Jesus is, no, he didn't say that. He actually said that Jesus was so in line with what the Bible said. So like spot on that it's almost like the Bible became a person. Right? In fact, Jesus is called the Word made flesh. And so the Bible then is described as the shadows of Jesus, and Jesus is the substance in the book of Hebrews. And so what we have here is this, when he says that the Word of God is increasing, multiplying, it's like this, this plan of God, this communication of God of himself to humanity that used to be just the Bible, but now is the Bible and Jesus. That continues to go and increase and multiply while the path of self-magnification is struck down. So as we go into chapter 13, we are going to see what it looks like for the word of God to increase and multiply and what this path of Jesus magnification looks like. Now, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. You all know what that means. It's narrative. It's a story. It's telling us what did happen, not necessarily what should happen. So you can't necessarily go like, oh, well, Paul went to Cyprus. I'm supposed to go to Cyprus. Well, that's 
Not quite where we're at here, but this is a great example for us to learn from. So Acts chapter 13, going to be an example of people who are making much of Jesus with their life, and we're going to learn a bunch from it. So verse 1, here we go. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so remember what we said just a minute ago. This is narrative. This is story. This is what did happen. But even though this is just descriptive, it's going to give us great insight to what it looks like to live this life of Jesus' magnification. So what are the things who are about making much of Jesus, what does their life look like? Let's start in verse 1. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, right off the bat, we have some things to interpret because you hear prophet and you think weirdo, right? Like, the, unfortunately, like this is kind of one of the things that happens back in the day. Like prophets were a common, like respected part of society. In 2021, not so much. We think of prophet. We think of guys standing on the street with a megaphone who has called himself a prophet. It's not an occupation in 2021. Uh, so if you say you're a prophet, we're kind of like, what does that mean? It probably means something weird. Well, here's what it means in the Bible. Okay, it's a spiritual gift. Okay, so it's a gift given by God for the purpose of his magnification uh, to the body of Christ, to the believers uh, that are intended to make much of God. So when he says prophet here or teacher here, he's not talking uh, just about like just random, like he's a fireman and he's an accountant. Like these are spiritual gifts and people that are exercising the spiritual gifts of prophecy and teaching. And maybe this is new to you. Maybe not. Maybe you've heard the term spiritual gift before. Maybe you have experience with people doing really odd things like weird stuff. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's a spiritual gift. And, and so you have like a weird view of it. The, unfortunately, that's all too common, especially with this first gift we have mentioned here, prophecy. Um, you know, we have people that come to this church every so often like, Pastor, I'm a prophet, and God has a message for your church. And I tell them what I tell everybody. We're a nonprofit organization. Dad joke, you know? Um, so, like, 
You know, but it happens, right? People come up here all the time. And it, not all the time, but it's probably happened 20 times in the five years we've been here. And the, I have a message for your church. And I'm like, yeah, well, I believe God works in order and, and works with clarity. And I don't know what you're going to say. So, no, you can't have the mic. Right? It happens. The spiritual gift that we see in the scripture is not one where it's like random and who are these people? These are clearly identified people who operate in these gifts, right? They are clearly leaders within the church. They have been identified as people who the church trusts. There's these five guys here, the original five guys. No, uh, there's these five guys together that are praying and fasting. And, and let me be clear, even though I made the joke about it, right? I do believe in the spiritual gifts, and I do believe in the gift of prophecy. I don't know for certain that everybody who says they are a prophet is a prophecy, is a prophet or has the gift of prophecy. And I don't think the best way to exercise the gift of prophecy is by going to a church you have no relationship or accountability to and expecting to address the congregation. But I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because it's not a teaching on spiritual gifts. But if this is what it looks like for people to be about Jesus magnification, then spiritual gifts is part of the deal. And I was just having a conversation with some of the guys this weekend, like who happened to be fathers. And I was like, why is it that we have these two spectrums, especially when it comes to like talking to our kids is about spiritual gifts. Like we either have the people who never say anything about it or we have the weirdos and there's like nothing in between. Like there's this no healthy conversation. And as a dad, I was like thinking through it. I was like, how come I've never been like, hey, maybe you have this spiritual gift? Like, who's going to encourage your kids in their spiritual gifts if it's not you? Some of you, that might be super convicting right now. You'd be like, oh, yeah. Right? And, and here's why we've set up our church the way we have. When we do growth track, we talk about spiritual gifts. Like, because so many Christians, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, not only have no idea if they have a spiritual gift, but what it is or how they would use it. It's just not a part of their lives. But we see it in the Bible. I'll do a couple quick ones, because uh, I know when you bring this up, you can't just leave that. Um, these are some frequently asked questions about spiritual gifts. And this is going to be quick. Why does God give spiritual gifts? The same reason that he does anything. That we would know him better. God wants us to know him. So if we receive a spiritual gift... It's that people would know God, that he would be made much of. So it is intended then to make much of God, make much of Jesus, not to make much of ourselves. Okay? If you see somebody exercising what they call a spiritual gift and it's making much of themselves, uh, that's, that's a misuse of the spiritual gift. Number two, commonly asked question, does everybody have a spiritual gift? All believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit and therefore have spiritual gifts. So yes. Do I have a spiritual gift? Are you a believer in Christ? If the answer is yes, then yes, you have a spiritual gift. And then you say to me, wait, wouldn't I know if I had a spiritual gift? No, you wouldn't because it's just normal to you. You've had it probably for a long time and you had no idea. I had some girl come up to me one time and she's like, I kind of want to help out at church, but I don't think I'm really good at anything. I said, what do you like to do? And she's like, um, well, like, I really like organizing things and like putting things in their place. And like, like last year I asked for a label maker for Christmas. And I was like, that's incredible. And she's like, well, everybody's like that. I was like, nobody's like that. 
like our houses are like a mess and like things are everywhere and like we don't we, there's chaos like nobody is like please let me organize like that is a way God has wired you that is different than the rest of the world right and so these spiritual gifts like you probably don't even know you have them and that's why we are so heavy on relationships and getting you into small groups and serving alongside team members because usually what happens is somebody looks over and says you know you're really good at that like, I had no idea. Yeah, well, you are. Like, you say things, and people are like, oh, my gosh, that's incredible. And I say the same thing, and people are like, I'm leaving the church. Right? So, like, <laughs> there is ways that God has wired and equipped and uses people in ways to, through his spirit, magnify himself that not everybody has. I could spend forever on this. Right? But two, two common mistakes. Do I need to find out what my spiritual gift is? This is something I try to balance as I lead people. Sometimes I come across a person who has a God-given gift for a certain thing, and they don't see it. Like that earlier thing that I just said, like, they have no idea. And I try and encourage them into this clear way that they are being used by God uh, and, and, used and gifted by God that others are not gifted. And I, I encourage them, hey, you should invest in this a little bit. Hey, you should look into this. Hey, you should press into this. Hey, you're kind of neglecting your gift. Maybe you should start stepping into this. Sometimes I tell those kinds of people. On the other extreme, there's people that feel like they need to like organize and categorize every moment of their lives into a spiritual gift and label themselves with one gift or another. And I'm not sure that's how God wants us to operate. Right? Like, oh, I don't have that gift. It's in front of you. Do it. <laughs> like, like, oh, well, I'm, I'm this gifted. I can't do this gift. Like, maybe uh, there's some people in here who probably need to pay more attention to spiritual gifts because you don't spend one minute thinking about them or investing in them or developing them. And right now you're like, oh, maybe I should do that. And then there's others in here that could probably just stand to talk about spiritual gifts a little bit less and just be about Jesus' magnification and, decide, and see how God decides to use you. Okay? So that's my spiritual gift rant. All right. That took a minute, but the path of Jesus' magnification definitely involves spiritual gifts. We have two mentioned here. Teaching, which is the idea of explanation, bringing understanding, has mostly to do with intellect. And it's a little bit different than the other gift we have mentioned in the passage, which is prophecy. Prophecy is probably the most misunderstood spiritual gift. It's not just telling the future. In fact, it usually isn't telling the future when we talk about it in the scriptures. Prophecy is speaking forth the word of God, making known the truth of God, interpreting the purposes of God. Where teaching is kind of like explaining, prophecy is more interpreting and applying. Where teaching has more to do with the intellect, the mind, prophecy has more to do with motivations. Okay? So maybe I just talked about spiritual gifts a little bit and you got to the end of it and you're like, oh, I understand. Like, oh, I get it now. Like, I didn't know that before. Now that I see that, like, I'm making connections in my brain. That is the spiritual gift of teaching, okay? Others of you, when I just said that stuff about spiritual gifts, you were convicted. And you're like, oh, I need to be motivated to think about spiritual gifts and how I can encourage them in my own life. That's prophecy. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes they don't. But uh, those are the two gifts and kind of how they operate. Now, one of the things about these spiritual gifts specifically, prophecy and teaching, is these guys are considered leaders in some capacity within the church here. 
Now, spiritual gifting doesn't mean you are a leader, but leaders usually have more effective spiritual gifts. And I'm not saying that, hey, you should be promoted because of your spiritual gifts, but it's really hard for me to receive teaching or prophecy from you if I don't consider you a leader. Or another way to say it, if I don't think you're spiritually healthy. If you walk out the door and there's a guy down in front of Lucky Leaf and he's like, God's holy, give you a message. Truth be told, that could be a spiritual gift of his. You're probably not going to listen to him because you don't respect his spiritual maturity, right? You don't have like, but there is nothing to say that God has not given that guy a spiritual gift. But because of his spiritual maturity and his spiritual health, you're probably not going to listen to him. Okay, so it's not necessary that you have spiritual health and spiritual maturity to operate in spiritual gifts. But some of you have limited the effectiveness of your spiritual gifts because you can't get out of the world because your spiritual maturity is zero or your spiritual health is zero. Now, these five guys were all identified as men, not only who had spiritual gifts, but who were spiritually healthy enough to be seen as leaders within the community of Jesus followers in Antioch. In verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. So we see these guys, they are worshiping and fasting. Why are they worshiping and fasting? It doesn't tell us. It just seems like it was a regular thing they did. And this might be a surprise to some of you, but worshiping and fasting for thousands of years was just a regular thing that the people of God did. Not like super saints, not like level 12 Christians, right? Like just regular Jesus followers worshiped and fasted like it was a normal part of following God. We talked about it last week that humans were created to worship. Humans were created to magnify. And if you're not worshiping the Lord, you are worshiping something. Pair with that fasting, this spiritual discipline that is in your Bible and has been part of the normal practices of the people of God for thousands of years. So this is happening. This is happening in life. These are what worship and fasting we would call spiritual disciplines. Right? These are spiritual disciplines. These are things that we do to up our spiritual health that we engage in specifically for spiritual benefit, okay? What is fasting? Maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe you're new or just aren't clear on what the thing is. In the Bible, fasting is going without food for the purposes of pursuing God. In the Bible, fasting is only, the only thing fasting is ever applied to in your Bible is going without food for the purpose of pursuing God. That's the only thing in your Bible that is called fasting, okay? Now, that might be a surprise to you because some people were like, wait, I thought fasting is when you don't eat so you can lose weight. Well, that's the 2021 version, right? Like, that's, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Or I thought fasting was uh, going without Facebook for a month because you realize it's become unhealthy for you. So you do a Facebook fast. It's not in your Bible. Okay, I thought fasting was like when we just eat vegetables because there's some health benefits. Also not in your Bible. Okay, so we have all these things that people call fasting 
It's not skipping dessert during Lent because you're overweight. Like, those are not fasting. And, and I don't, none of those are bad, okay? But I do want to be clear about what we see in the Bible. Fasting in your Bible is not eating food for the purpose of pursuing God. So why, why do I make that distinction? Because let's say, let's say you said, I'm fasting from Facebook. So you delete your social media accounts. That's a good choice. Probably what happened is you've realized in your mind social media has become an unhealthy habit for you. And so you distance yourself from that. And so when you delete your social media account, what happens is you read your Bible 20 times more than you usually do. Is that what happens? No. You just don't look at Facebook anymore, so you watch TV. That's not fasting. That's not fasting, right? You have this thing that you stopped doing because it was unhealthy, and you usually fill it with another unhealthy thing. That's not fasting. Fasting is not eating and then taking that time that we would have spent investing in eating and now using it to pursue God. Worship, prayer, meditation, scripture reading. That's different, okay? And here's the key difference. It's self-control, okay? In that scenario I said earlier, when we fast, let's take the guy, you know, I'm Catholic, so I give up things for Lent, so I gave up dessert for Lent. During dessert time, are you now spending time scripture memorization? No, you're just like, Going to watch TV or hanging out with your family or doing what you think. So it's not fasting because there's actually no self-control involved in saying no to a fleshly desire and yes to a spiritual discipline. Okay, and that's what fasting is in your scripture. And it's super important to us because we've built a whole society that is like self-control avoidant. Right? Like that's why so many of the inventions in our world are like, oh, man, this self-control thing sucks. Can we, like, fix that? Yeah, microwave. Like, I want food now. I don't want to control myself. Like, oh, can we do this and that? And like, so many of these solutions to problems are really ways that we can get around the idea of self-control. Right? That's what we've built our society on saying yes to what we feel like all the time. And fasting is mostly healthy for you because you start with saying no to what you feel like. And, and those other scenarios that I said about like fasting for losing weight or fasting because it's healthy for you or fasting from this other thing that's not food, they, they, they don't usually start with that same idea of like no to what I feel like. There's something good for your soul when you say no to what you feel like doing. Now, obviously, we could take it like to the full extreme and people like walking on their knees for 5,000 miles in order to honor God, right? And they're doing like weird like self-flagellation things. And like that, that's not what I'm talking about. That's like too far the other way. But in our culture, our society, my guess is because I live in this world that you live in, that we do too little of saying no to ourselves, not too much. That's why they're fasting and that's why it's a big deal. Now, they're doing this fasting and worshiping thing. And the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And then what do they do after they hear from God? More prayer and fasting. We talked about this a few months ago. Like, as Christians, especially in America, we're doers. It's like, God, what do you want me to do? And he's like, do this. And we're like, cool, got to go. And he's like, wait, I didn't tell you how. And we're already gone. Right? And, and. I feel like maybe this is happening with my flag football team. I told Toby I would coach his flag football team this year, right? 
And uh, I feel like that's something God wants me to do, to engage in the community, to love on people, to be a light. And I just assumed the reason God wanted me to be a flag football coach because I was an amazing coach and we were going to win all of our games, right? So God was like, coach football. And I was like, cool, got it. We're going to win the Super Bowl. And we've lost three. No, we tied one. We tied one and lost two. And maybe God doesn't want me to coach because I'm the best coach that's ever lived because clearly that's not true, right? That was an elevated view of myself outside of reality from a couple weeks back. Uh, Maybe there's kids on my team because God knew if they were on any other team, their coach wouldn't pray for them as much. Right? And, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit it. it took me three weeks to come to that conclusion. Maybe there's kids on my team because other coaches would be only concerned about winning. And, and I should know better because I'm a pastor and I should be concerned about their spiritual health. Maybe we're going to lose every single game, but one of those kids is going to accept Jesus. Would I still sign up for coaching? Oh, man. I thought you called me because I'm the best. No, I didn't call you because I'm the best. And so this is a great picture of this saying, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And what do they go? Okay, what does that look like? And they go into a time of prayer and fasting after they were called by God to set them apart. Like they're seeking God's guidance not only on what to do, but what it looks like when they do it. Uh, this is something that people ask me all the time. I never know where to put it because there's never necessarily a, a like spiritual, like we don't get a scripture that teaches on this, but decision-making like this that we see right here where Barnabas and Saul are like, I know God's called me. I don't know where to go or what to do. That type of decision-making is pretty common. And lots of people come to me all the time and like, I don't know what to do. Where should I go to college? Or, or should I take this job or not? Or should we buy a new house or not? Or should we, like, this decision-making thing is a real thing that people deal with and kind of have no idea how to do it. They know God should probably be involved in some way, but, like, what does that look like? Well, I got kind of four criteria that I run through, and I'll save you all the time of, like, coming to my office and, like, meeting with me. I'm just going to give you the blanket thing. Right. So maybe someday in the future or maybe right now you're dealing with the decision. This is what I would tell you. Number one, did you pray about it? Is it biblical? That's all one thing. Right. Dear Lord, my secretary is really hot. I want to leave my wife for. No, you can't pray that, can you? No, because it's not biblical. Right. Did you pray about it? Could you pray about it? Right. If it's illegal, you probably can't pray about that either. Like. Dear Lord, bless my cocaine business. Like, nah, probably not. Right? So, like, that's the first part. Did you pray about it? Did you ask God? And, and you'd be surprised how many people don't pray about huge decisions. Oh, uh, we had to go buy a new car. Ours broke. Did you pray about it? Why would I pray about a new car? Oh, uh, we bought a new house in a different neighborhood. Did you pray about it? What? Huh? We're going on vacation this week. Did you pray about going on vacation? No. Why would God want to keep me from vacation? Like, there's surprising amounts of things that Christians don't pray about. Number two, what do godly people say about it? What do people who love Jesus say about the decision you're about to make? Like, and you don't have to ask for permission, but just run it by them. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. 
hey, you know a little bit about this, and pick people who love Jesus and love you. Right? If they're really God-honoring, they're not going to be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, unless it's warranted. Right? There's some people in my life that if I said, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, they would come to me and say, like, hey, I usually wouldn't say anything, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I'd probably listen to them. Right? Number three, what are the hidden intentions of your heart? Not what you pretend are the intentions of your heart. What's really in your heart? Because we can all put on this face of like, oh, I'm doing this for this. And really, we're doing it for ourselves. Right? Like, I'm coaching flag football because I'm an upstanding member of society and I just want to invest in kids. And in the back, I'm kind of like, I just wanted to win. Right? And this hidden intention of your heart is revealed a little bit. Number four, how is your spiritual health? If this decision came to you while you were snorting cocaine in an underground rooster fight with like arms dealers, maybe not from God. Just saying, right? This happens all the, not all the time, but like enough that I'm like, what? Like people come to me and like, I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I was wasted last weekend. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. But I think God wants me to be a missionary. Like, okay. So you don't read your Bible. You don't pray. Sex outside of marriage is cool. Getting drunk all the time is awesome. You being a hypocrite and still coming to church is perfectly fine with you. But you think you hear from God. How funny is that? Right? You think that you, like God has a direct line to your heart. Right? Just be honest with yourself about that. Okay? Like I'm not trying to judge anybody right here. I don't know your situation, but think through your spiritual health. My experience is the less spiritually mature people are most likely to tell me God told them to do something. The more spiritually mature people are like, I don't know, I just have this feeling, maybe it's God, maybe it's not. The less spiritually mature people, pastor, God told me to. I can't tell you how often I get it, but it happens quite a few times. So these are my four criteria. Did you pray about it? What do godly people say about it? What are the hidden intentions of your heart? How's your spiritual health when you came to that conclusion? So these guys are evidently spiritually mature, right? These things are all taking place here. They are bouncing this off. Five spiritually mature guys who are leaders in the community. They're like cooperating, accountable to one another about this, respecting the community, spiritually healthy, right? They are praying about it. They're engaged in spiritually edifying practices that signify spiritual health. God calls them outside of what they're currently doing and currently comfortable with. And here's a great point. Maybe write this down. To live on the path of Jesus' magnification is going to involve discomfort. It just is. Not as much discomfort as if you stay on the path of self-magnification. Don't forget, we just read about a guy who dropped dead and was eaten by worms from his possible STD. Right? Self-magnification is discomforting in a different kind of way. But there is a moment where God's going to call you to something that is outside your comfort zone. Truth is, you can have comfort or you can have growth. Can't have both at the same time. Just doesn't happen. Right. So it would be wise of us to understand and be prepared for the fact that if we desire to live a life of Jesus magnification, it's going to be outside of what we're currently comfortable with. The day we prioritize comfort over Jesus magnification is the day we start to die. I'm telling you, 
Prioritizing comfort is just another form of self-magnification, and decisions based on self-magnification will not lead to your growth, and if you're not growing as people, you're dying. So they hear from God, they pray about it, they have input from other godly people. It's probably from God. They set off, and they set out on the Mediterranean Sea. They go across the island, across the sea, to an island called Cyprus. So I should have put a map up. I didn't. Uh, Mediterranean coast is over here. Out in the middle of Mediterranean is a long skinny island, kind of horizontal, called Cyprus. They go down a little bit and they sail across to the closest edge of Cyprus, which is a city called Salamis. Look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they start in a synagogue which is where they would have been very familiar with the surroundings, comfortable for them. We're not told that anything significant happens in the synagogue. They go to the next town, move on, keep going. Not told that anything significant happens there. Keep going, keep going. Until it says they went through the whole island. So we got this horizontal, long, skinny island. They start here. They go all the way through to all the towns and cities. We're not told anything significant happens. And if I was them, I'd be like, yo, God, why would you call me through all of this stuff to go across the ocean, to go to this island and visit every single little town and not use us to save everybody? And what are you doing? Why'd you call me to be a missionary if we're not missionizing? Like, what, 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 nobody's getting saved here. What's happening? Sometimes God asks us to do something, not because he needs that thing done, but because he wants to reveal the condition of our hearts. Right? Sometimes he's not up in heaven like, oh my gosh, I got all this stuff to do and I got nobody to do it. Bill, Bill, will you please do the thing that I've called you to do? No, we said earlier, God gives spiritual gifts and does all the things that he does for one reason, that you would know him. Right? So as God is revealing himself to Bill, he's like, hey, Bill, can you do this thing for me? And what is revealed in Bill's interaction with God is not like getting stuff done. It's the relationship between Bill and God. And so many times God calls us to do something. And our response to that call is a reflection on our relationship with God. If the purpose of God is that you would know him, then the most important thing is not what gets done, but how you react when he speaks to you, right? And, and there's faith now that is work in Barnabas and Saul, this trust in God, that they're going across the ocean. They're going through this island, not because it's comfortable, not because it's working, not because it's a good idea, but simply because God called them to do it. And Barnabas and Saul continuing on, even though it seems not to be very fruitful, is a reflection of their trust in God and their relationship with God. And their hearts are doing what they're doing for what he desires, for his magnification, because he called them to do it, not self-magnification. There's not a lot of self-magnification going on here as they sail across the city, spend all this time and resources, leave their comfort zone, and visit town after town with nothing happening. Now, 
trip doesn't seem to be accomplishing a ton as they work their way across the island. They go the whole length of the island and they come to the furthest town from where they started called Pathos. So Salamis is over here, Pathos is there, one end of the island to the other. And they get there and God finally uses them to reach somebody. Is it in the synagogue? Nope. Is it a very nice old lady who loves God, just doesn't have the gospel figured out? No. Is it God-fearing Gentiles like we've seen in other parts of the scripture? No. It's a false prophet who named Bar, so Bar means son of, so a false prophet, a heretic, a cult leader who calls himself the son of Jesus. Is that kind of ironic? Is that outside of your expectations? It's absolutely outside of your expectations. Right? It's outside of your comfort zone and not what you would expect God to do. There's a whole bunch of people on the list that you would expect to start following Jesus before a false prophet, magician guy. And yet that's where God starts on this journey. Now, I get it. Like the name Jesus is pretty common in those days. So maybe it had nothing to do with Jesus, but it's kind of ironic that that's the guy that God used to bring Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, sorry, lots of names in the Bible, into uh, the company of this political figure, the proconsul, and ends up with the proconsul getting saved. So Barnabas and Saul are teaching the word of God. We read it. Things start to get uncomfortable for the bar Jesus magician guy. Why? Because if you get on this path of Jesus magnification, the people who are on the path of self-magnification are going to know. Right? You put them life up side by side. You usually hang out with people who are like you, right? So when you hang out with somebody who's way more about Jesus' magnification than you, there's two responses. Most people are like, oh, that guy sucks. He's all about the Bible and stuff. And like, he doesn't even have a TV. I'm out. We're not just hanging out anymore. Right? And people are like, no, I kind of like this self-magnification thing I got going on. I'm going to go hang out with other people who are in the self-magnifying and don't make me feel bad about myself. This is way more comfortable for me. Or there's this positive peer pressure that I was talking with Ben about this week, right? Where you can hang out with somebody who's into Jesus magnification and you can be like, man, that's awesome. And have it convict you to actually engage more and think of yourself less, right? That's the healthy way to do it. This guy is not the healthy way. So what's he doing? He's trying to convince the pro council, get these guys out of here. Get them as far away from me as possible. We don't need these guys. We don't need to listen to what they say. Come on, they're weirdos. They're whack. And the truth is, religion always gets really crooked when you get self-magnification twisted in with it, right? And that's exactly what Saul says to this guy. He says, you are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, I'm going to finish with this. I'm late, but this is worth it. So hang on with me for two more minutes. It's not necessarily a command this morning, but we have an example to learn from. The path of Jesus' magnification probably involves some discomfort, is going to involve Holy Spirit power. It's going to involve spiritual discipline. It's going to involve self-control. It might cost you something. It's going to involve surrender. You may have to make radical changes in your life. It may not look like you'd expect, but it's going to take faith and obedience. And in the end, Jesus will be glorified and your soul will be full. 
And I bring that up because there's this other story in the Bible where the people of God start complaining about God. God is with them, like leading them through the desert. Like he's physically present with them, like pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. Like he's in their midst. And they're like, but we don't have enough food and our tents have holes in them. And like, where's the cool stuff? And they like start complaining about the things they don't have instead of rejoicing in the God they do have. And the Bible says at that moment, God gave them the desires of their heart, but sent leanness to their souls. Okay. You want this self-magnification stuff? You can have it. But you're going to get the result of that type of life, which is leanness to your souls. And I don't think that there's a better description in the Bible of the type of life that most people live in America, both inside and outside of the church, than to live with a lean soul. There are so many people who are getting what they desire and their souls are lean. And I'm telling you, the path that we have as an example here before us, it might be uncomfortable. It might be outside the box, right? You came here, you're like, I just wanted to feel happy when I left. And he's talking about, I got to figure out what my spiritual gift is. That's outside my box. I got to engage in spiritual discipline. I'm not telling you you have to, but I'm saying that might be what God calling you to outside of your box, outside of how you would expect. But here's what he, he promises at the end of it. Life with a full soul, not a lean soul, but a full soul. The path God is calling you to is different than lean soul. And it starts with humility, leads to worship, may not look like what you expected, but it ends in a fullness of soul that I think we all desire. Anybody hear that fullness of soul? And like, oh, that just sounds good. You ever been really hungry and you just start thinking of the food you're going to eat when you get back to civilization? You know, you go on a real long hike. You're like, when we get back to McDonald's, man, that just, that, I think that's what, that's my point in bringing this up. You should hear fullness of soul, and you should be like, oh, man, that sounds great right now. That sounds great right now. It, it's the path of Jesus' magnification, not of self-magnification. Worship team, come on up. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it encourages us. And Lord, even when we have uh, instances like this morning where there weren't a ton of commands, but there were examples of people walking by faith, of people being spiritually mature, of people surrounding themselves with other Jesus-magnifying brothers and sisters who are on the same path, and you working mightily through them and allowing them that fullness of soul at the end of it. Father, that's who we desire to be. Now, Father, I don't know what your conviction looks like for everyone in here. Maybe there's people not exercising self-control. Maybe there's people who you're calling to invest in their spiritual giftings. Maybe there's people who need to surrender, Lord. Maybe there are people who need, need to start praying about stuff. Maybe people have separated themselves from relationships because those relationships revealed this level of self-magnification in their hearts, and it was uncomfortable, and you're calling them to repent of that this morning. I don't know, Lord, but the great thing is you do. So as we sing this last song, as we respond to your word, as we reflect on your goodness, Lord, may you convict hearts. May you do your work. May you look down on this people and see a people who desires to be Jesus magnifying, 
May you send us that fullness of soul. And we ask in your mighty and precious name. Amen.